Hello and welcome back to Cockhurts. New season and a new episode brewed fresh for you. Season 2 and guest number 2. Today we will have a very special guest with us with whom we'll kick start this season. He's none other than Percy Mistry. So a computational cognitive neuroscientist, he's currently a research scholar at the Stanford Cognitive and Systems Neuroscience Lab. He did his postdoc training in computational neuroscience at Stanford University. He has a PhD and a master's degree in computational cognitive science from University of California Irvine. However, that's not all. He also has an MBA in finance and systems from IIM Calcutta Indian Institute of Management and a bachelor's in degree from electronics engineering from University of Mumbai. Apart from that, a cherry on top, he also has 10 years of work experience at HSBC in various roles in Mumbai and Hong Kong. So hi, welcome Percy. Thank you so much for taking the time out to join us. Thanks a lot Rakshita and Chetan. It's been a pleasure to be here. So look forward to an interesting session. Yeah. So um starting off, so uh, before we like got started with this interview, we floated around a questionnaire and we got like lot of people were curious because you had a very interesting career trajectory so would we would be curious to know more about it and to understand where you're headed so how did sure. you come into cognitive science right so um as you mentioned i had about i was working in finance and banking for about 10 years and as part of that uh, i grew more and more interested in behavioral finance and behavioral economics uh looking at sort of decision making both from a customer perspective as well as decision making that was happening uh you know by employees within the bank uh, strategic decisions uh the role of uh of the very clear role of behavioral finance and behavioral economics which talk about the fact that you know the assumptions that uh, rational economics sort of makes uh, might not always be true and that you need to take the human side uh of cognition into factor into sort of uh, trying to analyze why people make uh certain economic and financial decisions uh is very critical and so that got me interested into the whole area of behavioral finance and economics uh until i realized that a lot of the pioneering work within that field was done by cognitive psychologists so including some cognitive psychologists who were awarded the nobel prize for their work in behavioral economics uh so that's when uh so coming from an engineering mindset uh i had that initial skepticism of uh you know psychology as a soft science uh which which as i'll tell I you later totally on understand. uh which i'll tell you later on i i think it's a much much more harder science than than yeah. some of the so called hard sciences <laughs> having been into like uh but 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 getting back um uh so i dwelt more into cognitive science and psychology and i was initially very very surprised with the level of uh, intense mathematical statistical computational rigor that at least a subset of psychology and cognitive science research was uh into and dealing with um and so that's when i decided that that seemed like something that was very interesting and that seemed like something that i wanted to sort of do further research in uh it is much more harder i say than some of the so called harder sciences because you have to deal with individual variability um uh which is so every every time if you're a chemist and you know every time you mix two compounds together under certain fixed conditions you always get the same result uh it doesn't work that way in psychology or cognitive science so when you take that uncertainty into account then uh 
I always say that doing bad science is easier in psychology, uh, but doing good science is harder in areas like psychology and cognitive science than it is in you know the so-called harder uh, science fields. And so that got me interested into computational modeling in cognitive science, and that's what I did my PhD in. Um, and so looking at how, how can you start replicating individual differences, individual variability in decision-making uh, into an artificial agent uh, so that you could get into things like human-in-the-loop modeling or modeling how uh, build, cascading up to how decisions are made in the real world uh, from, with a, from a sort of granular uh, basis. Uh, that's where I sort of uh, came into contact with neuroscience Mm -hmm. uh, and realized that sort of psychology, cognitive science, and neuroscience were very similar fields running in parallel with a bit of gap between them in, in the sense that psychology and cognitive science were looking at behavior and neuroscience was looking at the brain, uh, but there was a gap between sort of putting those two together. Uh, and I found a niche in terms of computational modeling being able to help with bridging that gap. And so that's what I did my postdoctoral training in. Uh, and so right now, uh, as a research scientist, that's the key area of focus where I use computational modeling to bridge the gap between brain and behavior uh, and especially apply it to uh, understanding the developing brain in children, understanding um, what's going wrong when we have developmental disorders um, and looking at what, uh, what can be done uh, in terms of early diagnosis of such disorders for the developing child, and well as if you look at interventions, whether they're sometimes behavioral or training-based interventions, or sometimes they could be pharmacological interventions, uh, do they have an effect not just on behavior, but also long-term effects or even maybe short-term effects in terms of the brain and the functional organization of the brain and the way uh, the brain responds to such interventions? So can we customize such interventions depending on what we know about the human brain? Um, and yeah, so that's, that's sort of, um, uh, a brief summary. Just, just, just one, just, I would like to just take one sentence which you said, uh, you said bridging the gap between brain and behavior, but right. don't you think behavior actually stems from the brain and, um, this right. it's actually a part of it, or do you think it's completely independent of each other? Uh, no, I very much think that it is a part of it. But uh, wh when I said bridging the gap, what I meant not in terms of how it's generated, but more in terms of how it's studied. So I think uh, there's a lot of behavior which is studied in isolation. And then there are properties of the brain um, that are studied in isolation mm -hmm. without necessarily linking those fields together. I mean, I'm not saying I'm the first one to do it. Obviously, there are lots of people who've uh, done this kind of work, uh, but but it is an area which is relatively understudied compared to tackling these fields in isolation, and so that's where uh, a lot of my focus has gone. Okay. Uh, yeah. Rakshita, question. Yeah. So, um, so after like knowing such an interesting like background, so we were just wondering, would you be interested in coming back to India, maybe setting up a lab here, or like? Also, like, what would make you come back here? Because, like, there are also, like, plenty of exciting uh, cocci and neuro research labs which are growing up here. Plugging yeah, in IIT Kanpur, yeah. Like, great <laughs> ecosystem for you to come. Yeah, yeah that, uh, yeah, from, from what I've heard so far, definitely seems like that. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely an interesting question, right? And uh, obviously, there are a lot of both 
personal and professional factors that go in. So sort of generalizing your, um, your question to sort of eliminate the personal factors. So uh, looking at it purely from a professional standpoint, if, if someone's been doing uh, research in, let's say, Europe or the US, um, and at sort of a mid-career st- or early career stage, what would it take to get back to India and set up a lab there? Uh, I think it comes down to sort of, uh, as you rightly mentioned, the ecosystem and resources. So, and I think yeah. of resources in terms of three primary uh, uh, factors, right? So the first uh, most obvious one but, uh, is uh, a pipeline of research funding because mm-hmm. a lot of neuroscience research can be quite expensive and it's not just about funding a particular project, but is there a pipeline of research funds that can support a career or multiple careers, uh, multiple labs? Uh, the second bit in terms of resources is, to, uh, to your point about the ecosystem, is that a lot of really progressive neuroscience research uh, gets done often when there is a collaboration between uh, experts in a lot of different areas. Yeah. So to give an example of uh, the lab that I work at and the, uh, the collaboration that happens here, we have people with advanced uh, sort of training in computer science, AI, deep learning but also in statistics, uh, clinical psychologists, computational modelers, people who are who have neuroimaging experience, experience in EEG, uh, psychologists who are trained in sort of education and clinical practitioners. All of that, uh, maybe not all of these for each and every single project, but like you know a subset of that, working towards the same project, not as something that is you know where that collaborative project is the main thing that they're working on. And so it's necessary to have that kind of an ecosystem if you're going to make a lot of progressive steps in neuroscience. So uh, is there an ecosystem developed well enough that that supports, you know, having such a large uh, range of expertise? And the third is, um, I think the, uh, a lot of the work and a lot of this work is very in data intensive. And a lot of this work gets done by undergrads, research assistants, postdocs, you know, very uh, graduate students, early career people. So is there enough of a pipeline of, you know, talented people who are taking cognitive science and neuroscience up as majors in these places uh, to support this kind of research work? So I think if you have that trifecta in terms of these three streams of resources, that would definitely be a very, very favorable environment for someone to look at coming back and setting up a lab. Yeah. So uh, we were wondering, like, what happens when different people, like from neuroscience, psychology, computational backgrounds, all of them. So, like, since it's a very interdisciplinary field, so what happens when different people come together, have different opinions? Like, how does like uh, research and ideas like can grow in this? Right. So, so the first because thing especially that I... neuroscientists, yeah, sorry, especially no, 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 no. neuroscientists, philosophers, and uh, people who are hardcore into computer science, they might have very very strong opinions on certain aspects and how do you overcome those yeah. opinions and come to a common ground where if you put up an opinion you know that the uh, philosophy uh, philosophy guy or the psychology I will continuously attack it like how do you grow in that how do you collaborate with such differing opinions right so I think the the, the first thing is uh, you said what happens when um, you know all of these different people come together so the first thing that happens is that uh, uh, projects take much more longer to complete. (laughs) 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 So, but, uh, but on a more serious note, uh, I think uh, one is, uh, as scientists, we all need to have uh, our belief systems open. 
I think uh, no scientist should be 100% sure of his work because then there's just no more room to grow. Uh, you should be pretty sure of your work, but, but you, you, there, there should always be room for doubt, uh, especially doubt that can be sort of addressed with data and information. And I think as long as uh, you know all of the people involved are reasonable and open to reason, open to making inferences from data, uh, rather than just being led by a set of existing belief systems, uh, what happens is that a lot of um, uh, the data and information gets examined much more thoroughly. Mm -hmm. uh, what happens if there is a single, you know, if, if there's just a one-dimensional track or sort of uh, someone from just a single field, there is an established way to look at the data and that'll just get done and it'll probably result in a paper and a research project, but it won't, it, it'll be incremental. When you have all of these different opinions, what gets hap what happens is that uh, in order to resolve the conflicts, uh, that data and information is scrutinized in, in much more robust ways. Uh, perhaps sometimes even experiments need to be repeated to take additional confounds into factor. Uh, so you have a lot more rigor that is being applied. And once that rigor is applied, uh, if people are open to what, you know, what the data is telling you, then usually these conflicts get resolved and you land up with a much more, a much more than just an incremental sort of project in that sense. That's, that's pretty, uh, that's very insightful, especially with the projects take lots of time because as you keep conducting pilots and the confounds keep, yeah can understand so let's try to get into the more meatier part of the interview which i kind of know your answer to this question gauging from your answers but what position do you hold on the mind body problem and like try to explain it in a more uh, like a classic youtube uh, explain it to me like i'm fine five manner how would you describe it in the most simplest form who's new to this realm of cognitive science but just just an intuition, I think you might say functionalism, but I don't know. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so so introduce the mind-body problem, uh, like your five. Uh, so the essence of it is basically that we know that the brain, or you know, which is clearly part of the body, uh, exists, and we at least depending on what philosophical position people hold. Uh, people think that there is something such as mental processes and thoughts uh, that exist, and uh, then there's behavior that exists. Uh, and uh, how is this behavior? So if this behavior is produced by these mental thoughts and processes, uh, but there, we do not have any physical explanation for how these mental thoughts and processes might be produced uh, by the brain or by the activity that we see in the brain uh, based on the physical properties of the brain or the biochemical properties of the brain as we know it. Um, so that's, uh, I'm, I'm not sure whether I've explained it uh, in, in no. the sense of what yeah, a five-year-old like, but, but, but let me, let me put, let me yeah. try a metaphorical way as well. So uh, let's say you have a, a car that runs on gas and you've, there is no way for you to figure out that uh, you know, you can fill gas in the car or you can see where the gas is filled in the car and yet the car magically runs and you wonder what's making the car run, but you haven't been able to figure out, you know, the, where the gas is coming from or why the car stops running certain times because you don't know that the gas is empty. 
And we are at someone like that. Uh, we have that kind of external perspective on the brain and we can't quite figure out the, the missing piece over here being the gas that's keeping the car running, right? And uh, as, as you mentioned, there are a lot of, so a lot of uh, different philosophies on that. So the primary ones being sort of dualism and monoism, monoism essentially saying that the mental thoughts and processes all come uh, simply as a function of the physical properties or the biochemical properties of the brain and that there's nothing more to it. And dualism, uh, there are different types of dualism as well, but dualism essentially saying that the mental processes and thoughts are fundamentally different and cannot be explained by the physical or biochemical properties of the brain. Uh, within dualism, there is things like substance dualism, uh, which talks about or um, uh, you know the fact that these two are entirely different things. But there's also another form of dualism where um, you say that there is a complete set of physics that explains both how mental properties, mental thoughts and processes are generated, as well as the properties of the brain. It's just that we don't know the former as yet as well. And that's mm. something that's to be discovered. Um, in terms of uh, my own sort of belief system on this is, uh, I like to think of mental thoughts and processes as the underlying causal mecha mechanics that, um, that explain how you know, the, what we see in the dynamics of the brain gets translated into behavior, right? And uh, what we can do from us when we are studying neuroscience perspective is to tap into these causal mechanisms and try to understand them in the best possible way, uh, which essentially means that you try to almost as much as possible deflect this mind-body problem onto one side. Because if you if you get too entangled into it, 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 it can you know raise up questions like consciousness and free will. And once you go down that path, then you can, you're left debating mm -hmm. that for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just just one more confirmation. Uh, you talk uh, you talk that your position mostly rests upon causal mechanisms, right? Is there yeah. a hint of you being a more having a more Bayesian approach versus a more frequentist approach? Uh, yeah, I, I do have, uh, uh, yeah, I do like to work with a lot of Bayesian statistics in general and Bayesian sort of uh, uh, thinking of things in a Bayesian manner uh, compared to frequent, compared to a frequentist approach. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So uh, since you mentioned that you have a background in developmental studies, why do you think it is essential to um, focus on developmental studies? Right. So um, a couple of things. One is developmental studies. It's, um, uh, you know, so typically that's a period in, you know, uh, human life or the life of any animal, which is very, very critical in terms of shaping the brain. Um, so think of it like, again, trying to come up with a metaphor, but I'm probably not the best ones. Uh, if you look at a if you look at a dish after the, it's completely cooked and you're trying to figure out what went into it, it's much more harder. But if you observe the process of you know putting in the ingredients together whilst you're cooking it, it's obviously much more easier to do it. And the adult Damn, brain that's a really good analogy. Right? <laughs> so, yeah. so so the adult brain is the final cooked dish that you're looking at. And then you're trying to guess everything that went into it and you know what you did. 
during development, you can actually see at least part of what, what's going into it and what's happening over there. So one is that gives you a lot more transparency to understand what's happening. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, uh, is actually are some empirical observations. So what people have seen is that the variability, so the individual differences in brain and the dynamics of the brain as, also, as well as the dynamics of behavior, slightly, uh, of course, these are a couple of uh, isolated studies. So, you know, uh, there might be, uh, with everything, there might be some studies which actually show the uh, things the other way around. But I'm aware of at least a few studies which have shown that variability increases with age. So mm. if, uh, if you can, and so you will have different trajectories of development leading to sort of the greater and greater heterogeneity as people grow older. Uh, and uh, there is a strong uh, sort of uh, thought that these trajectories, these different trajectories of variability are influenced by what goes on early on during development. So if we want to understand the wide range of individual differences we see in adult, a very, very strong clue might be to study the trajectories that go on early in development when the level of heterogeneity is actually not as high as what we see in sort of older children, older adolescents, or even adults. Uh, the other thing is that, um, uh, you know, coming back to that analogy that I gave earlier, the adult brain has too many confounding factors. Uh, we've seen, uh, the adult brain has already seen a lot of different learning it has seen a lot of different belief systems undergo change and a lot of internalization that has already happened. And so uh, understanding that is much more complex than, so I'll, I'll give you an example of understanding mathematical cognition, right? How our numerical cognition, how do we deal with numbers? Uh, so when you study it during the developmental phase, you can very, very clearly see how internal representations might change over time. So people have shown that uh, the, uh, kids develop a sort of internal mental uh, number line, but that number line is not always linear. It has, you know, certain specific shapes that are strongly affected by the kind of visual stimuli that children usually see, uh, and also by the learning processes that by which they might internalize these representations, and that over time the shape of that number line might change. Uh, uh, the strategies that children use for even for simple arithmetic are not are very different from the strategies that adults use. And when we do a developmental study, we can actually see how these strategies change over time and how they're related to things like improvement in cognitive control, executive function over time that happens. So if you want to really understand how the adult brain is formed, these developmental studies are a very, very critical part of it. Uh, people who study more, uh, you know, the structure of the brain have also shown that, you know, there are things like uh, synaptic pruning and myelation, gray matter changes, etc., where, uh, where uh, a lot of these changes happen very strongly during the developmental period, and they might give us some answers towards why the changes that we see in developmental uh, into, uh, behavior happen from a structural standpoint. Of course, uh, with a caveat that a lot of these changes also happen in older sort of adults, uh, probably in the opposite direction. And I think the final point is that, uh, especially when it comes to things like mental health issues, mental disorders, a lot of the genesis of all of this is during development. And so the better handle that you can get on any aberrations in the brain, any deviations from typically developing children, and the earlier the 
you can identify these things, uh, the better the long-term prospects are, the better the chances of interventions are, and we can learn more about what kind of interventions would work best from a, a learning disability perspective, from an ADHD perspective, and you know things like that. So, uh, like, so with regards to variability, so which aspects of like cognitive control specifically vary between uh, children and adults? And is there right. a sense of morality which is taken into account for such control? Because we know that moral morality dimensions vary as the development process goes. Mm -hmm. So, do children, do children on average exhibit similar trends of cognitive control? In but for older samples, we have different trends. Okay. Uh, yeah. Great question. So, um, cognitive control. So, uh, in terms of just sort of discussing, you know, when we say cognitive control, um, what is it? So, it's basically the fact that um, the brain sort of processes information, it displays some behavior, uh, and that behavior, the processing of information, is often very goal dependent and it is very context dependent. Uh, so. Cognitive control is when people can voluntarily change the context and change how they process behavior and how they respond to certain stimuli adaptively, depending on what the current goals are, depending on what the current context is, rather than being invariant to goal and context and just being, uh, you know, having a static process for processing information and responding to anything. So that's that's what you would generally sort of look at from a cognitive control perspective. So the flexibility and adaptivity. Uh, now, what we see in terms of differences between children and adolescents, and then adolescents and sort of uh, adults, uh, is that you you see sort of almost a continuous trajectory on multiple dimensions. And an example is um, one place where cognitive control comes into place uh, is where um, when there is conflict resolution that needs to be done. And so the level of conflict resolution, so how easy is it for people to process conflicting information that they get and resolve that in order to make a decision? Uh, the ease and speed of that definitely increases from childhood to adults. Uh, what we see is that things like um, so there are a lot of things like visuospatial working memory, uh, strategy, the use of strategies, so being proactive when it comes to cognitive control rather than just being reactive. Um, the level of consistency that is shown, all of these factors are much more stronger in younger adolescents compared to children. And then uh, not just, and then it's actually uh, stronger in younger adults compared to adolescents as well. And all of these factors then play a role in terms of the cognitive control. So things like uh, information control over social cues. So you know when when uh, people are uh, made to interact with a certain objective and a goal in mind, uh, how they might control things like their eye contact or gestures. Uh, adults are able to do that much better than children, even when they are given the same kind of goals. Uh, and a lot of that may be biological in terms of uh, the capacity that children have. Uh, so, so there are two things. One is in, the, in a continuous dimension of capacity. So uh, that's more of a generic ability that keeps improving with age. But the second uh, is, is sort of a non-linearity, which means that there is a fundamental difference in the way children and adults process some things. And um, 
let me give you a biological example of that. So we did a study where we looked at how ch young children and then teenagers respond to the voice of their mothers, just the mothers saying nonsense words. And what we found, and then how did they respond to voices of you know strangers, uh, uh, again, a female voice so that it could be compared to mothers, uh, but strangers saying the same nonsensical words. And what we saw is that in younger kids, the reward uh, parts of the brain that you know are easily triggered by rewards. So the same part of the brain, which would typically in most children be uh, activated when they see a chocolate that they really like, also got activated very strongly with the mother's voice, much more compared to the stranger's voice. But that relationship flipped in teenagers. So the teenagers' uh, reward systems got activated much more strongly with the stranger's voice compared to the mother's voice. Now, this is something that is not consciously controlled, right? Because we are measuring the activity of the reward. So this is something biological that changes during development. Mm -hmm. And we know that things like reward and motivation play a strong role in cognitive control. So this just gives you an example of how things, uh, there, that there are so many different factors that might affect uh, the context around which cognitive control is, is sort of uh, implemented in adults versus children. And uh, the other thing that I can think of is things like um, uh, memory in think a uh, memory of day-to-day -day things. Uh, in, very often in children, uh, there is a conscious effort uh, of certain hippocampal regions sort of to try and memorize these things. In adults, that gets internalized. And you actually have, uh, when, that's get in, when that gets internalized, uh, there's less reasoning that happens. And that sort of brings me to the point around the morality that I think uh, Chetan brought up with respect to cognitive control, um, which is that people find that um, with respect to even moral reasoning, people have found that children actually uh, use deliberative reasoning for moral decisions far more than adults do. So adults are more, relatively speaking, more intuitive in terms of their moral decision-making. So, and that, where does that intuitiveness come from? It could be learned over time and internalized. It could also come from things like social conditioning, but you would, so as an adult, most people would have some set ideas about what is moral, what is immoral, good and bad, whereas, um, children would reason about it. Now to reason about it, they still need some certain axioms but children have much fewer axioms than adults do. And then they rely on those few axioms to reason out whether something is good or bad, moral or immoral. Uh, so that's, and that then um, of course plays a strong role because um, as we know, cognitive control is all about setting goals, what the motivation are, what the reward is gonna be and how you adjust your behavior accordingly. And if the, process by which you set goals is affected by things like reward, like I mentioned, or is affected by things like moral reasoning. And if, uh, for instance, uh, if you, so, so this, there's moral reasoning literature that goes about talking about things like utilitarian and deontological morality. So utilitarian is something that is purely functional. So hundred lives, saving hundred lives is better than saving 20 lives that would be a kind of utilitarian decision of moral, morality. Deontological is something that seems right. Uh, so uh, if you had to, so that's like the typical trolley problem, right? So if 100 people were going to die anyways, but you could do something to, you know, kill 20 other people, but save those 100 lives, it does seem de deontologically wrong to you, right? Even though it's 
from a utilitarian perspective, it's positive. Uh, and uh, what people have shown is that in these type of issues, children think through these in a more deliberative manner than adults who have an intuitive gut feel for what is right and wrong. And if the, if the resulting implications for what is moral and immoral are different in kids compared to adults, the goals that children set might be different and hence the, the kind of cognitive control they assert might also be different. So that's how morality might play into cognitive control in children compared to adults. Having said that, I, I have to say that um, very often, it's not very often that these aspects are studied together, especially in children. It gets quite difficult to do that. So very often, a lot of what we know about cognitive control, especially in children, is more sort of with spatial, visual, physical kind of stimuli rather than something that is also morally relevant or irrelevant. So uh, definitely, there's a lot of room for more research in that area. Yeah. I think you got a lot of uh, dense insights from that single question. Yeah. So um, final meaty question is that uh, you'd like to discuss and like ask a few questions about your paper, uh, a cognitive uh, adaptive decision making account, how much to purchase. And this was like super exciting for us even to read because like we are working in decision making. Right. So before we actually go into the details of the paper, how would you quantify uh, utility in those questions? And since qualia could be a major influencer for determining our personal utility for those uh, situations, is that the reason why you introduced various streams of cognitive processes? To um, if, if not, then what was your motivation behind investigating it from a you know, uh, cognitive processes there. Right. So I, whilst you might be right in terms of the influence of qualia, that honestly wasn't how I was thinking about it. Um, so uh, I was actually almost sort of uh, um, reverse engineering what we, so what we, what we know is that there is a wide range of individual differences, right? And what we know is that the standard economic model uh, could not explain a lot of those individual differences. Um, and so uh, uh, the problem arises when the variation across individuals extends to uh, either side of what the standard model projects. So what I mean by that is if, uh, if, there is, if there's only one kind of cognitive process that is affecting behavior, then you would typically see that the a cognitive based model would sort of push the predictions of that model in a single direction away from what the standard model standard economical uh, economic model sort of predicts uh, if you have to account for variation that happens on either side uh, what seemed to play a, a relevant role was this sort of dichotomy of different cognitive streams being uh, so I believe I also use things like the utilitarian versus uh, deontological perspective in terms of how behavior might vary compared to the rational economic model. So, um, but I think the biggest uh, factor over there was things like uh, the thing that got me into modeling that process was uh, the idea of a reference point. So there, the idea of a reference point has been 
very, very pervasive across a lot of behavioral economics literature. Uh, but very often that reference point is assumed to be static or reference point model uh, ha have been used in a very theoretical or verbal sense without specifying it within a quantitative framework. And wherever it has been used within a quantitative framework, it's been looked at as a very static reference point, which begs the question as to where, how and why does the reference point get created? How do we come up with a reference point? And I think the biggest uh, factor over there was that uh, any meaningful process that we can think of in terms of a reference point being developed would have to be continuous and dynamic, which means it would be changing with time. And so uh, I think what got me started into that paper was uh, having a reference point that changed with time. So what were the factors that might change uh, our internal reference point that we have that we use to compare anything external with uh, primarily price, but it could be anything like I talk about tax rates or any other factors. We typically have an internal reference point. And, you know, there's been a lot of analogies of the brain being a prediction machine. And uh, this sort of is partially compatible with that uh, in the sense that a reference point uh, any difference between what we hold as the reference point and what we actually what actually materializes in the real world is sort of feedback that goes back to the brain to try and move the reference point in a particular direction. So uh, speaking about like such static reference points, in this paper you show that uh, dynamic characteristics of elasticities can be um, explained by examining purchase decisions through the lens of a, a sequential cognitive process. So this elasticity is a concept that determines the influence of a unit change of an underlying um, independent variable like prices or tax on the purchase right. quantity. So just to uh, give like an idea to our listeners for attaching salience weight, which is your reference point for shifting the utility, you talked about a conflict between hedonic utility on one hand and a uh, moral obligation uh, on the other. Right. So um, to give context, the hedonic utility of an action is the amount of pleasure it would cause you minus the amount of pain that it would cause in the most general sense. So the uh, question is that, don't you think that this view can be a little exclusive of moral dimensions where moral obligation would actually catalyze your hedonic utility? For example, uh, moral obligation and trade-off with hedonic utility could depend on our self-beliefs, but also our social environment and our conditioning. For example, if you have a family kind of situation, then the hedonic utility can be positively correlated with your uh, uh, with uh, could be positively correlated whereas for societal or a job based conditions it would be negatively correlated so we can't say that always conflicts would happen sometimes it would you know push in the same direction right so th that's a great point um, and i think that's where the distinction between what is um uh, a kind of a measurement-based model and a, and a more sort of uh, generative model that takes into account like the true underlying factors. So so uh, when I conceptualize, you know, these dynamic elasticities as a function of, uh, uh, you know, the hedonic uh, uh, sort of adaptation of reference points, uh, what I can only, what we can only measure using the model is based on behavior. And so 
uh, you're right that there might be a lot of different factors affecting that behavior, uh, ultimately resulting in a deviation from what you might call the rational economic model. And so you might have one, two, or 20 different factors that pull and push this deviation. We can't really tease out unless we have more granular data uh, about some of these factors. We can't really tease out each of those factors. But what we can tease out is the amount of deviation from the standard economic model and in which direction that deviation is. And uh, we can then say that the net effect has been, and perhaps that that needs to be better articulated in uh, uh, you know in the model and uh, you know this kind of paper, is that the net measurement that we are making is like an as-if model. So it's as if a utilitarian uh, decision was being made, or it's as if a hedonic adaptation, or it's as if uh, a sort of, you know, there was a moral conflict. Uh, it And it's it could be true that, you know, there are 20 different things that are pulling and pushing this to result in that final net value. So it's not about passing a judgment on whether the purchase decision reflects hedonic adaptation or moral decision-making or utilitarianism. It's just a, having a measurement scale and looking at effectively what what that measurement scale would denote in terms of utilitarian versus, you know, deontological positions. Uh, does does that make sense? Does that make it clear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what is like the most um, showstopper result from this paper, which you're really proud of? Um, actually, the, 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 the best result from this paper is probably not in the paper yet. Uh, it's, uh, because, uh, or it's related to the last point. Um, so what, what, what I looked at was, uh, you know, the, the influence. So we had some real world data and the influence of tax on purchase decisions. Mm -hmm. And what we showed okay. is that across, so what's shown in the paper is only like three states because, well, this was a early pilot version of the data in the paper. Um, so in three different states in the United, uh, in the US, uh, how the political regime changes affected the tax elasticity of people, uh, people's demand. And so the idea being that uh, when there is a more favorable political regime, people become less sensitive to taxes. And when there is a, a less favorable political regime because of the lack of trust and fairness uh, people become more sensitive to taxes. And the model could hence reverse infer the level of uh, political affiliation of a particular state on an average, uh, just based on their consumption behavior. And this was, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, uh, it was sometime back, consumption of beer, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and the influence of tax rates on uh, that consumption. And so just from that, you could actually sort of proxy measure the political affiliation of a state. In the paper, it's only for three states. We've done some further work on it. Uh, it works for a lot of states. For some reason, the model did fail for some states, and which is why we've not yet published it. We are trying to look at what's missing in the model in its current state so that it can actually account for all of the variability we see across states. But I think that the fact that you can actually reverse infer political affiliation from consumption behavior based on really cool. a, a cognitive model is, is the most interesting bit. Wow. Yeah. 
So, toning down the vibe a little bit, what is the best part of being a cognitive neuroscientist? Best part uh, of the day. Uh, the, the best part is being able to debunk all the myths that people have about the brain. <laughs> <laughs> Also, the fact that when you go to uh, w- when you meet new people or go to parties, uh, there are very two extreme and typical reactions that you get on being uh, on, on saying that you're a neuroscientist. Either people just walk away and look for someone <laughs> more interesting, or people don't stop asking you questions till the end of the party. <laughs> but uh, but but yeah, I think uh, on a more serious note, I think the best part is the that it applies to everyone, right? Like it is as you. Be- as it comes if you if you have a brain you know what what we do is relevant to you so that that just uh makes it so much sort of meaningful in in every sense it's very easy to say what do you do oh i study you (laughs) i study your brain yeah yeah so which is the one book you recently read with uh, which made you like head over heels with this field for example for me recently it was in consciousness we trust by hawking dow so any like similar book like something which you could recommend to people okay if you want to get interested in this particular niche then you have to read this book yeah uh that's an interesting question and I, i'm i'm sort of a bit, bit of a contrarian in that sense is especially in the field that i i work in i found that i don't actually enjoy reading books in that field a lot and, <laughs> the, reason, and, and, and the reason is the reason is i think i i i think uh, the devil is in the detail and so uh, yeah. once you once you start reading scientific papers about these things uh, you find that books sort of gloss over things and miss out on the key details so it's, i i always feel like i'm left what, like there's something missing in what the book is portraying, which you can only get out of reaching, reading the paper. So uh, I can, I can in fact tell you, <laughs> I, I don't know how many people will pick that up, but uh, you know, one paper that sort of I really, when I initially got into cognitive science about, uh, you know, around 10 years back or so, uh, nine years back, um, uh, a paper I just about about creating a false memory in the hippocampus where they used uh, optogenetics with a with a rat or a mouse to implant a false memory of fear uh, mm-hmm. in our in the rat in in a place in a context where it actually derived it was otherwise deriving you know reward and uh, that was that was pretty awesome and uh, yeah that that so that kind of stuff actually got me started getting me interested into neuroscience from you know moving from cognitive psychology into more and more of neuroscience. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I don't really have a book recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> I think this paper is really good because even in our lab, I think people like who work with mice and optogenetics, like they'll be super interested. Like I'll have to recommend it to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, I think, I might be wrong, but I think it was a paper published in science. Oh. the general science yeah wow that was that was really like interesting so like uh without taking up your time even more <laughs> we would like to thank you for taking the time out of your schedule and talking to us yeah thanks and a lot a uh it's fun rich yeah yeah no, 
Sorry, continue. No, no, I was just about to basically say I completely enjoyed being here. So thanks for having me. It was, it was a great <laughs> experience. Just a fun ritual we like started in a podcast series was that at the end, the guest would end the conversation with their favorite quote related to the field or research interests in general, like just a quote. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm even worse with quotes than I'm with books in the field. <laughs> That's but, totally uh, fine. No. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You you can. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, we like copy paste something on when we write about this about the tweet or something like what we felt inspired from this interview. Something quote like we can use for it. So yeah, uh, on that note, signing off, Chetan. Rakshita. Bye. Bye. Thanks, guys.